Those of you who've been attending our church over the past few months will know that we've been working our way through the book of Revelation. And so far, we've made it through the first three chapters of the book, and it's taken us 10 weeks to do that. Today, then, I thought it would be good for us just to take a deep breath. In fact, we'll probably take a couple of weeks of just taking a deep breath before we plunge into the rest of the book of Revelation, although we'll probably have another break over December as well. Today, I'd like to share with you a passage of Scripture that I've often shared with you on an individual basis. I've read this passage and prayed through this passage with many of you who are going through difficulties, and I thought it would be important for us to look at this passage as a congregation. We're going to have a look at the book of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5, all the way through to chapter 5 and verse 10. Paul writes this, For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. And since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. 
Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I've been doing this recording, I've realized that there is a weaver bird in the trees making a nest. So if you hear a lot of chirping and chirruping, that is exactly what is taking place. In this passage of scripture, Paul uses a variety of pictures and images. He speaks about treasures in jars of clay and wasting away and earthly tents and being clothed and the mortal being swallowed by the immortal. There's so much that we could look at here. But today, I'd like us to consider three realities that Paul says we face in our lives. Secondly, three unshakable truths that Paul says hold true even in the midst of those realities. And finally, three practical actions that Paul urges us to keep on practicing in our lives. Firstly then, let's have a look at three realities that we find in our lives. It has been said that in this life nothing is certain except death and taxes, but it seems that that is inaccurate. <laughs> there are actually three things that are inevitable in our lives. Firstly, Paul speaks about difficulties. Have a look again, verses 8 to 12. We are hard-pressed on every side. Problems and oppositions close in on Paul from all directions. And all of this leads him to be perplexed, stuck, not knowing which way to go at, at all, at his wit's end. He's persecuted. The word literally means hunted. Paul knows what it is like to be hated and literally pursued by his enemies, having to flee for his life ahead of his enemies. He feels struck down, and Paul was often quite literally struck down. He says, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, for we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. That word always, repeated twice here, reminds us that all of this was a constant experience for Paul. Jesus made an interesting promise in John chapter 16. It's not a promise that you find on too many bookmarks or calendars, but Jesus promised, in this world you will have trouble. Hundreds of years before that, the writer of the book of Proverbs put it this way, each heart knows its own bitterness. Proverbs 14 verse 10. And perhaps in those times where we feel overwhelmed and at our wit's end, it's good to know that even the Apostle Paul felt those things. So the reality of difficulty. The second reality that Paul says we all face in our lives is that of decay. Verse 7, he says, 
but we have this treasure in jars of clay. And clay jars are pretty fragile and breakable. In verse 16, Paul says, outwardly we are wasting away. And in chapter 5 and verse 4, he says, for while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened. I'm not sure that all of us can relate to this concept of decay in our lives. I suppose for most of us, this is age-related. And when you're 25, unless you have had a major sports injury or ill health, the concept of decay is a totally foreign one to you. However, the older we get, the more we can understand what Paul is speaking about here. I came across this piece recently where an older person wrote this. Everything is further than it used to be. It's twice as far from my house to the station now, and they've added a hill, which I've just noticed. The trains leave sooner too, but I've given up running for them because they go faster than they used to. Seems to me they're making staircases steeper than in the old days. And have you noticed the small print they're using lately? Newspapers are getting further and further away when I hold them. I have to squint to make out the news. Now, it's ridiculous to suggest that a person my age needs glasses, but it's the only way I can find out what's going on without somebody reading aloud to me. And that isn't much help because everybody seems to speak in a much lower voice. I can scarcely hear them. Times are changing. The material in my clothes, I notice, shrinks in certain places. Shoelaces are so short they're next to impossible to reach. And even the weather is changing. It's getting colder in winter, and the summers are much hotter than they used to be. People are changing too. For one thing, they're younger than they used to be when I was their age. On the other hand, people my own age are much older than I am. I ran into my old roommate the other night, and he's changed so much I didn't recognize him. You've put on weight, Bob, I said. It's this modern food, Bob replied. It seems to be more fattening. I got to thinking about poor Bob this morning while I was shaving. Stopping for a moment, I looked at my own reflection in the mirror. You know, they don't use the same kind of glass in mirrors anymore. I remember once chatting with a lady at church, and while we were chatting, she bent down to pick something up, and she took a long time to get back up. And I helpfully said to her that she'd reached the age where when she bent down, she would have to say, what else can I do while I'm down here? Fortunately, she did come back to church the next week. Jokes about old age are endless, but actually getting older or even experiencing decay when we're younger is no laughing matter. Somebody has said that old age is not a battle, it's a massacre. Did you notice in this passage that Paul said, while we are in this body, we groan. Decay is not pleasant at all. So the reality of difficulty, the reality of decay, and the third reality that Paul says we all face in life is death. In verse 1 of chapter 5, Paul says, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, and the only reason Paul uses the word if is because he's unsure whether he will die before Jesus returns. It's interesting, though, that as human beings, we often use the word if when we speak about death. 
I read about an insurance salesman who reported that 99% of his clients, when planning for the future, would say, if I die, not when I die. He said that even people in their later 80s would speak about, if I die. Reminds me of another insurance agent who said to one of his clients, well, take the policy and think about it overnight, and if you wake up tomorrow morning, give me a call. Each of us will one day die. The statistics for death are very impressive. One out of every person dies. But in this passage, Paul doesn't simply deal with the realities that we face in life. He speaks about three unmistakable truths that hold true even in the midst of difficulties and decay and death. Three truths that are able to transform those realities. The first truth has to do with God's power in our weakness. In verses 8 to 12, Paul says, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. The reason that Paul is not crushed or in despair or abandoned or destroyed is not because of his strength or his cleverness or his ability to survive. No, it is God's power that sustains him. Verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We don't have to wait until we die before we can experience God's resurrection power in our lives. Already in the here and now, God is waiting to break into our lives if we will allow him in. What does that look like practically in our day-to-day -day lives? It means that when I face difficulties or when I face decay, I turn to God and I acknowledge, Lord, without you, I am going to be overwhelmed. I'm not going to make it. I don't have any resources to be able to deal with this. Please, will you give me your power? And we don't simply know God's power, but we show God's power. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. When we stand up under the difficulty, we show other people the power of God. God's light shines through us. And look at the results in verse 15. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. When people around us see God's power, they are reached by God's grace, which in turn brings glory to God. And so tomorrow morning, when my boss starts to yell at me, I need to pause and think to myself, I need God's power here to respond in a way that is different, so that people may see the light of God shining through me and may come to know God's grace. 
In verse 11, Paul says that we are given over to death for Jesus' sake. It's so important to see in this passage that we bear up under the difficulties, the temptations, the persecutions, not because of a stiff upper lip or through gritting our teeth, but we face the difficult boss. We face the teasing at school. We face the diagnosis for Jesus' sake. We accept it as a means to experience and demonstrate God's strength. And so the question I should ask myself in times of difficulty is, how can I use this situation to rely on and demonstrate God's power and grace? A little later in chapter 12, Paul speaks about his famous thorn in the flesh. It was a personal difficulty in his own life that he couldn't overcome. And in that situation, God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardship, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So, truth number one, God's power in our weakness. The second truth is that our troubles achieve eternal glory. Verse 17, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. This is a glorious truth. It means that our troubles and our decay are not meaningless. All of this is not pointless. And Paul knew firsthand what he was talking about. This verse must be one of the biggest understatements in all of Scripture. Paul speaks about his light and momentary troubles. But just listen to some of those light and momentary troubles as Paul describes them later in this letter in chapter 11. He says, five times I received from the Jewish people the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And yet Paul speaks of our light and momentary troubles and he says that they are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Paul is not suggesting that our sufferings earn us glory. There is nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. That was all done for us by Jesus on the cross. Also, Paul is not suggesting that all suffering leads to glory, as though it is automatic. No, Paul is speaking about suffering for Jesus' sake, consciously allowing God's power to work in us, in our suffering. 
And that means that our difficulties and decay are not meaningless. Many of you will know people with Alzheimer's disease. Perhaps you've visited somebody in hospital and they are just lying in a bed, unable to move, unable to speak. And you ask yourself the question, what is the point of this? Why doesn't God simply take this person to himself? But according to these verses, even our weakest moments, as horrible as they are, are achieving for us and possibly for others an eternal glory. And in the light of eternity and in the light of that glory, these difficulties are light and momentary. I heard about a pastor called Gavin Reed who had a young man in his congregation And this young man had fallen down the stairs at the age of one and had shattered his back, and he'd been in and out of hospital. One morning, Gavin interviewed this young man during the morning service. And at one point in the interview, this young man said, God is fair. Gavin stopped him and said, how old are you? The young man replied, 17. Gavin asked, how many years have you spent in hospital? The young man replied, 13. Gavin Reed asked, do you think that's fair? And the young man replied, God's got all eternity to make it up to me. So truth number one, God's power is made perfect in our weakness. Truth number two, our difficulties and trouble are achieving for us an eternal glory. And truth number three relates to the future. We have an eternal home. Chapter 5 and verse 1. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. The ultimate moment of Christian weakness is death itself. And yet, paradoxically, that is the point at which God's mighty power is most marvelously displayed. You may remember that Paul was a tent maker by profession. And in chapter 5, he refers to our bodies as being like tents. Tents are only temporary accommodation. They're not particularly impressive either. When you go camping, do you take your couch and put it in your tent? Do you put an oil painting on the side of the tent? Of course not. A tent is not supposed to be your permanent home. And Paul says here that if our earthly tent, our body, which is fragile and temporary, if or when it is destroyed, we have a permanent body that God has prepared for us. The eternal house that Paul is speaking about here is not the mansions to which Jesus referred in John 14, but rather a new resurrection body, like Jesus' resurrection body. And our heavenly body is far superior to our earthly body, just as much as a house is far superior to a tent. And so, in fact, in the rest of the passage, Paul, when he's speaking of death, speaks about three things. He speaks about security and wholeness and home. In verse 7, he speaks about security. We know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God. In verse 14, we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. 
When Paul speaks about death, he speaks about wholeness. In verse 4, he speaks about what is mortal being swallowed up by life. Paul Beasley Murray is a pastor and lecturer, and he writes this in one of his books. One of the things we dread about death is that it seems to diminish us. Even the process that leads to death is often one of shrinkage. We lose weight. We become bent over. Our skin and flesh seem to shrivel. Our hair begins to drop out, as do our teeth. Virtually every bodily function slackens in its efficiency. In the face of such reduction, it is a struggle to cling to full selfhood. Our egos wane to the point where they scarcely cast a shadow. We are no longer what we were. As we watch our human tent begin to fray and unravel and finally to split at the seams, we feel that our personhood is seeping out and running away. Nakedness is what we fear. We worry that we shall be embarrassingly unclothed. That is, we fear being incomplete, not whole, lacking in some essentials of personality. But there is no need to have that fear. Death will lead to wholeness. We shall not be naked, for God will clothe us with a new body. And then when Paul speaks about death, he speaks about home. Verse 8, we are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. For a Christian, to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Home is such an important little word. We all have a longing for home. In a small town in Spain, a man called Jorg had a bitter argument with his younger son, Paco. The next day, Jorg discovered that Paco's bed was empty. He'd run away from home. Jorg was overcome with remorse, and he realized that his son was more important to him than anything else. And so he went to the most popular shop in the center of town, and he got permission from the owner to put up a huge sign that read, Paco, come home. I love you. Meet me here tomorrow morning. Paco is quite a common Spanish name. And the next morning, Jorg went to the store where he found seven young boys named Paco answering the call for love, hoping to be able to come home. Death for a Christian means going home to the home we've always longed for. So three realities that we face in life difficulty, decay, and death, but three truths that radically transform those realities. Number one, difficulties and decay and even death are opportunities to experience God's resurrection power. Number two, our difficulties and decay and even the process of dying are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Number three, even at our weakest moment, as we die, God's resurrection power transforms our earthly bodies to be like his heavenly body. And so we have security, wholeness, and home. And then finally in this passage, Paul gives us three actions, actions that flow from the truths we've considered, but actions that can also reinforce those truths. 
Let's have a look real quickly. Firstly, Paul says that we do not lose heart. In fact, that's repeated at least four times in these verses. In verse 8 of chapter 4, he says, we are not in despair. In verse 16, he says, therefore we do not lose heart. In verse 6 of chapter 5, he says, therefore we are always confident. And in verse 8, he repeats it, we are confident, I say. I am not always confident. I do not always not lose heart. In fact, I frequently find myself in despair. So let's move on quickly to the second action. It's a paradox. We fix our eyes on what is unseen. Verse 18 of chapter 4. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I think that action one is dependent on action two, the way not to lose heart, the way for me to be always confident is not to fix my eyes on what is seen, but rather on what is unseen. One writer that I read this past week put it this way, How sad to be obsessed with what is seen, with money and possessions and people's bodies and clothes and drink and music and drugs. You talk to a girl about what she's looking for in a future husband, and she'll give you a list of physical and economic statistics. She might say, six feet tall and rich. If she says that, don't you feel pity for her? Wait until she's been betrayed a few times by a man like that, and then perhaps she will rather say something like this. I want someone to settle down with so that we can raise a family together, someone that I can trust completely. And I want to be loved by him and love him in return. I want someone to make me smile and we will always be together. She is talking now about so many invisible things, love and faithfulness and kindness and happiness. She is not fixing her eyes on what is seen any longer. By the way, this isn't a cop-out from life. Uh, C.S. Lewis put it this way in one of his books. Hope, or fixing our eyes on what is unseen, is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. In fact, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. So, number one, we do not lose heart. Number two, we fix our eyes on what is unseen. And thirdly, we make it our aim to please him. The very last verse of our passage. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. What a wonderful thought that we can bring pleasure to God, that our lives can bring a smile to the face of God. And when we stand before him, we're not judged for our sins that has been dealt with. Rather, our lives are evaluated. What have we done? 
with what God has given to us. And so Paul says that we do not lose heart. We are always confident. We fix the eyes of our heart on what is unseen, and we make it our aim to please God in every situation and in every moment. And living in that way reinforces the truths of this passage, that God's power is made perfect in our weakness, that our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all, and that even if we should face death, we have an eternal home with God forever. Amen.